Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Thanks for listening to the show. To support the podcast and letter, get lots of member-only features and follow Mike and Karina behind the scenes, go to aletterfromireland.com forward slash plus. That's aletterfromireland.com forward slash plus. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, this is Mike Collins and you're very welcome to this episode of the Letter from Ireland podcast. Today's episode is called One Field in County Galway and Why It Should Be More Famous. Okay, intrigued? Well, let's go on with the show. Now, if you travel to County Galway and go to the west of that particular county, you'll be in an area known as Connemara. The main town in the area of Connemara is known as Clifton. And a little while back, myself and Karina went to the town of Clifton and journeyed just a few miles outside and came across a very, very fascinating place because it was a field kind of in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the bogs. And it was only when we came back and did our research, we realized just how much association that field had with a couple of very, very uh, major historical events, all to do with the advent and the actual um, progress of communication around the world over 100 years ago. So in today's show, we're going to tell you two stories and link those stories together to that particular field. So I think you're going to enjoy it. So before Karina reads our first letter today, all about one Italian genius and his Irish mother, let's kick off with a rollicking Irish shanty. It's the Hills of Connemara, performed by Noel McLaughlin. Gather up the pots and the old tin can, the mash, the corn, the barley and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from raisin barney. Keep your eyes well peeled today, the excise man is on his way. Searching for the mountain tay and the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the old tin can, the mash, the corn, the barley and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from raisin barney. Swing to the left and swing to the right The excise man will dance all night Drinking up the tea till the broad daylight In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the old tin can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran I run like the devil from the excise man Give the smoke from Raisin Barney A gallon for the butcher, a quart for Tom A bottle for poor old Father John To help the poor old man along In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the old tin can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran A run like the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from Raisin Barney Stand your ground, it is too late The excise man is at the gate Glory be to God, she's drinking in it In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the old tin can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran A run like the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from Raisin Barney Gather up the pots and the old tin can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran A run like the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from Raisin Barney
Do you ever marvel at the miracle of modern communication? Our ability to make calls, send emails almost instantly and at such little cost. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a man and his Irish mother who played a crucial part in the making of that modern miracle of communication. The father of wireless communications. If you travel to the town of Clifton in the west of County Galway, then travel a little further to the south, you'll be in wide open countryside with hardly a tree to be seen, bog all around you and the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the mountains of Connemara on the other. We travelled to this location last year and proceeded then on a short hike. Before long, we came across a gate with the single word Marconi spelt out in steel at the top of the gate. We knew we were in the right place. We stopped there, took out a bottle of Jameson whiskey and made a toast. Why? Well, the person we were toasting is the subject of today's letter from Ireland. Guillermo Marconi was born into an Italian aristocratic family in 1874. He had an Italian father and an Irish mother. His Irish mother was called Annie Jameson, and she was the granddaughter of John Jameson, distiller of the ubiquitous Jameson whiskey, and he distilled that in Ireland in the 1700s. Marconi began tackling the problem of moving to the wireless transmission of telegraph messages from the limitations of physical connecting wires in the early 1890s. Although he grew up with a practical head, he was neither an engineer nor a scientist. In fact, he failed the entry test to the Italian Navy. However, he was gifted at at experimentation and he had excellent connections due to his high standing in both Italian and British society. By the mid-1890s, he had conducted a number of successful and impressive wireless experiments in Italy and now he was ready to get the right level of sponsorship to bring all his ideas to the world stage. At the time, telegraph communication was tied to physical wires, which caused several problems, especially when attempting to communicate across oceans. Marconi realized that all of the technology was in place now to move telegraph communications to a wireless format. All that was missing was someone with the ability to join the parts together and the tenacity to experiment in different and often very hostile locations. Finally, whoever put the pieces of the wireless jigsaw together would need the cooperation of governments and large businesses. And so Annie Jameson travelled with her son to London in 1896 to gain sponsorship for the next phase of his work. They secured the support of the chief electrical engineer for the General Post Office and he sponsored larger and more challenging wireless experiments. So by March 1899, Marconi was making successful wireless telegraph transmissions between England and France and across the English Channel. Things moved quite rapidly from that point and the next step was to transmit telegraph signals wirelessly across the Atlantic Ocean from the USA to Europe. Located at the extremity of Europe, 
the island of Ireland had a large part to play in Marconi's plans, helped no doubt by encouragement from his Irish mother. Over the next number of years, Marconi built eight radio transmission stations across the island of Ireland, including one in his mother's hometown of County Wexford and another in the wilds of Clifton in Connemara. Marconi visited Ireland frequently as he oversaw the building of all these stations. When Marconi's system eventually made the first successful transatlantic transmission in December 1901 via the station in Clifton, Connemara, it was celebrated as a scientific and commercial success. The transmission station in Clifton went on to employ 250 people in the early part of the 20th century. That was making it one of the main employers in the west of Ireland at that time. However, these buildings were burnt to the ground by the IRA in 1922 during the Troubles. As we walked the path past the Marconi Gate on that beautiful late summer's day, we came across the concrete foundations of the original Marconi buildings. These now only remain as ruins, and that's all that you can see of the remarkable achievement and venture that went on on this landscape. Marconi's Irish connections continued as he went on to marry an Irish woman by the name of Beatrice O'Brien. By the time he died in 1937, he had cemented an extraordinary legacy in the field of radio communications and business, and he also went on to win the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1909. Sitting here in a cottage in County Cork in Ireland this morning, connecting with you across the oceans around the world, I have come to appreciate the part that Marconi had to play in the making of the world that we now know it today. So if you ever wander into that field in Connemara and spot the gate leading to nowhere with the name Marconi on top, take a moment to remember a time when the world was a very different place. You might even join us and raise a glass of Jameson whiskey to the tenacity of both this extraordinary man and, of course, his Irish mother, Annie Jameson. Of the wind or the dark falling deep, angels are coming to watch all thy sleep. Angels are coming to watch over thee. So list to the wind coming over the sea. Hear the wind. With herring of silver 
There's an Irish lullaby that people of my generation will be very familiar with. It's the Connemara Cradle Song performed there by Frank Patterson. Now, Corinne is going to continue our visit to that field in County Galway with this next letter titled All Cock and Brown, Their Amazing Flight from Newfoundland to Galway. A couple of weeks ago, we headed for Connemara in the extreme west of Ireland. It's one of the closest places to North America within Europe and this fact plays a part in our letter for today as we recount the story of two extraordinary adventurers who travelled from the rock of Newfoundland to a soft bog in County Galway. Seatbelts tightened? Right, let's go. In the summer of 1908, Michael Dolphin left his native Galway for a new life in the USA. He departed from Queenstown in County Cork, now known as Cove, for Boston aboard the steamship Symerick and the journey would take 11 days. By this time, the emigration trail to North America was very well established. Sail power had already given way to steam power, but the journey time was still measured in weeks. However, all that was about to change. As he departed for America, Michael Dolphin may have heard of manned aeroplane flights that had increased in duration and distance since 1903, when Wilbur and Orville Wright made the first manned flight of a powered aircraft just south of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. However, he probably looked on them as science fiction, Remember, Michael had yet to see many motor cars, not to mind aeroplanes, in his native Galway. A competition to fly the Atlantic. Five years later, in 1913, the English newspaper, the Daily Mail, offered a prize of 
£10,000 to any aviator who could cross the Atlantic in powered aeroplane from any point in North America or Newfoundland to any point in Great Britain or Ireland, all non-stop and within 72 hours. While the competition was suspended for the duration of the First World War, it reopened in 1918 By that time, several aircraft manufacturing teams decided to compete for the prize, including one called the Vickers Company. All they needed now was an experienced pilot and a navigator who'd be up to the challenge. John Alcock was born in 1892 in Manchester, England, and gained his pilot's license in November 1912 not long after becoming a pilot for the duration of the First World War. Arthur Brown was born in Glasgow in Scotland in 1886 and he began a career in engineering just before the outbreak of the First World War. He went on to become an aircraft engineer and a navigator during the war. When the war ended in 1918, Both men had the ambition to get involved in the well-publicised Daily Mail competition. Alcock approached the Vickers aviation firm and put himself forward as pilot for their Vickery Vimy twin-engined bomber that had been nominated for the competition. His application impressed the company and he was taken on as part of the project. Brown also approached Vickers and his experience and navigation skills got him a place as Alcock's navigator. Now Vickers had their aeroplane and two experienced aviators. A hard takeoff from Newfoundland. With the plan being to obtain the most favourable takeoff site and flying conditions, Alcock and Brown arrived in St. John's in Newfoundland in June of 1919. At around 1.45pm on the 14th of June, the Vickers Vimy aeroplane took off in a bid to win the transatlantic competition. Alcock and Brown were accompanied by two toy cat mascots, Lucky Jim and Twinkletoes, and they also carried some mail that was to become the first airmail between North America and Europe, should their bid be successful. From the beginning, it was not an easy flight. The aircraft was laden with extra fuel tanks and it barely took off from a less than smooth field. The eventual takeoff, one that was just cleared, cleared the trees at the end of the field, was followed by a number of system failures and weather events throughout the journey. Those lucky mascot cats would earn their passage. Difficulties encountered included, at 5pm they encountered thick fog and had to navigate blind. The waves of the ocean below must have felt very close from time to time. At 5.20, an exhaust pipe, their radio, intercom and heating all failed. Due to electrical problems, their personal electrical heating suits also failed. Now remember, this was an open cockpit. At about 12 midnight, the fog and clouds cleared and Brown discovered that they were still on course. 3am, they encountered a snowstorm, despite the time of year. 
the instruments, steering equipment and carburetors started to all ice up. Brown had to work hard to make sure that all parts of the plane remained workable. A soft landing in County Galway. At 8.40am on Tuesday the 15th and by some measure of good luck, Alcock and Brown overcame each of these difficulties and made landfall in Connemara near the town of Clifton to the west of County Galway. They had flown for less than 16 hours in total. The aviators were delighted to spot a level field close to the Marconi wireless station. What they did not know was that this level field was in fact a soft Irish bog. As a result, the plane landed and promptly did a nose plant within a minute or two. Their ongoing luck ensured that both airmen stepped out of the plane unhurt. News of the successful landing spread fast and Tom Kenny of the Connacht Tribune arrived to receive the first interview. Alcock and Brown were treated as heroes in the weeks and months after their flight, receiving monetary rewards as well as knighthoods. The following letter was successfully delivered to John Alcock's sister. June 12, 1919. My dear Elsie, just a hurried line before I start. This letter will travel with me in the official mailbag, the first mail to be carried over the Atlantic. Love to all, your loving brother Jack. Now, that's a keepsake to have. However, John Alcock's luck did not hold as he was killed six months later on the way to a Paris air show. It is believed that Arthur Brown never recovered from the death of his friend and he was the type to actively avoid the limelight. As a result, their pioneering flight across the Atlantic was almost forgotten by the time Brown himself died in 1948. In 1947, one year before Brown died, Michael Dolphin, who we mentioned at the top of the letter, returned from the US for the funeral of his father in County Galway. You might remember that Michael emigrated to the US aboard the steamship, the Symric, in 907, taking 11 days to make the crossing. That was in 1907. Well, by 1947, commercial flights, typically refueling in Newfoundland, were taking place every day across the Atlantic Ocean. Just last week, we headed over to Alcock and Brown's landing site on Derry Gimla Bog on a beautiful sunny evening up in Connemara. This historic site is wonderfully commemorated and illustrated and well worth a visit if you're ever in the area. The evening was warm, dry and balmy, quite a difference from 102 years earlier when John Alcock and Arthur Brown made history by showing that two continents could be connected by the new technology of flight and in a way that would benefit all of us in the years to come.
And there we have the third of our Connemara titled pieces of music today, as the Connemara stocking there performed by the Chieftains. Well, isn't it amazing what can happen when you're out and about in Ireland and the stories you come across? I must say it's only sunk in, you know, a little while later after our visit to that field in County Galway up in Clifton. Just the amazing events connected with that very, very specific location and just how they have resonated down through the decades and so on. And even just digging up that personal reference for myself, uh, for Michael Dolphin, my own ancestor, and just thinking the actual changes that must have happened during his lifetime, especially if you come from a place in the west of County Galway, uh, immigrate to the actual USA, for example, and end up flying back those decades later to actually attend a funeral of a family member. And so many changes in the meantime. Well, okay, so that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, please do take a few moments to leave a review or a couple of comments in the podcast player of your choice. We really would appreciate it. It makes a big, big difference to the show. So on behalf of Karina and myself, for now, Sloan until next week. If you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we'd like to invite you to check out our special membership area, The Green Room. You hear us mention it a lot during the show. And you can find full details of The Green Room at letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Our green room is the essential resource for anybody at any stage in researching their Irish heritage because it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and really connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. In the green room, you get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a very supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The green room is the perfect place to be for anybody starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So why don't you come and join us there at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. That's it for me, but I'll be back next time with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. And I really look forward to chatting to you then. Slán Gafol, Karina. <laughs>